0: Hello, all, and welcome to this week's episode of the Daily Delphi. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Oxford Christ Church College alumni and all-round boffin, Seb Hyams. How are you, Seb?
1: Thank you very much, Harry. That's a lovely introduction, totally unjustified, (laughs) but we'll go with it.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, well, I think worthy praise. Worthy praise. Um, Now, today, we will be discussing. The Homeric question or questions. Mr Himes take it away what are they
1: what is it? So in fact what we call the Homeric question is a series of questions and the most basic of them are who wrote and or composed the Homeric poems by which we're really talking about the Iliad and the Odyssey and the second important question about that is how did they do it?
0: Thank you well Obviously, uh, I'm sure most of the listeners will know, the Homeric poems, Iliad and the Odyssey, are probably the two best uh, renowned epic works from around, I think, that at the moment they're calculating between 7th and 8th century BCE. And obviously, yeah, having, absolutely. Yeah, and ha- having been around this long, uh, this debate has gone on for centuries, hasn't it, sir? What do people think closer to
1: the time? Yeah, so this is a really interesting feature of... Um, The study of Homeric poetry is in fact that the ancients themselves uh, were constantly debating Homer and and whether he was a person and and what he wrote and so on. So we could take you, for example, um, back to the 6th century BC and uh, Cicero, uh, the Roman writer, says, looking back to the 6th century BC, that it wasn't until the Athenian tyrant uh, Pesistratus that the books of Homer were put into their present order. So that tells us that um, there's no, you know, when this poem is first circulating, there is still no fixed judgment about it. And then later on in the fourth century BC, we find an example um, of the Athenians and the Megareans having a dispute about what are called interpolations. And an interpolation is where somebody other than The hypothetical author, and we'll talk about why he's hypothetical later, um, have inserted a piece of text and then if you fast forward a little bit to the 3rd to 2nd century uh, BC you find the Alexandrian scholars, so Greek scholars living in Hellenistic Alexandria, and what they're doing is they're occupied with deleting what they consider spurious verses and interpolations and they're trying to provide the pure text of Homer. And you can tell that some bits of uh, the Iliad must be spurious um, or are very likely to be spurious, which means added in later. Uh, for example, the episode of the Dolinea, uh, Odysseus and Diomedes carry out an attack on the Thracian contingent's camp. And what's been argued for a very, very long time is that it can be entirely removed with no bearing on the plot at all. Um, similarly, people claim that the strange ending where you encounter Agamemnon in the underworld at the end of the Odyssey um, has also often been argued to be an interpolation.
0: I suppose at the same time, you've uh, you've got stuff like the Catalogue of Ships where Athens really definitely wasn't at Troy, but we find in later copies, They are they have situated themselves in... Catalogue of ships, which obviously wouldn't have been done. Now, obviously, there's a bit of a gap between uh, this sort of critical reception and later when classics and Homer becomes more prominent, uh, most obviously in the Renaissance.
1: Um,
0: I think what's interesting is that for so long people knew so much, well, they believed they knew so much about Homer but couldn't actually read Homer. You've sort of got a Petrarch writing letters sort of saying oh mighty man, how I wish to hear you because although we know all this sort of um, Literary tradition is owed to him um, for, as from we know uh, Virgil and the like um, we, we d- They didn't actually read ancient Greek they were too busy reading Latin
1: Yeah, and they didn't have the texts and you know, it's not really until uh, the fall of Constantin- Constantinople that you get this massive introduction of Greek texts into Western Europe. Absolutely. And I think thus it was quite a shock when they finally
0: began to read ancient Greek. I believe uh, Polition was one of the first to translate books to uh, five. of the Medici. And it was relatively, in inverted commas, flawed in comparison to Virgil. Now, we believe this is because of and we have uh, quite a few reasons to believe this is because of the difference in composition. You've got Virgil writing things down, Homer was what we'd call oral composition. Now, Miss Dimes, what's the sort of internal, external evidence for oral composition in Homer?
1: Yeah, so one of the things I think is beautiful about the Iliad is that feeling of um, a sort of unrecoverable past, a past beyond the written word almost. Um, and you really feel that when you read it. And um, you've got things like repetition, stock scenes, and stock scenes are where the same thing happens and it's repeated by the poet in the same order with the same terminology. Uh, so sacrifices of uh, receiving guests, uh, warriors arming, meal preparation, those kinds of things are what we, we call stock scenes. And the other sort of real giveaway is the use of epithets. Um, And what epithets are is the adjectives given to to the names of people or places or whatever um, in the poems. So we always find the phrase swift-footed Achilles, rosy-fingered dawn, the wine-dark sea, white-armed when uh, describing uh, goddesses or women, lovely-haired or, and another favourite one is, uh, again, to, to, to reference beauty is oxide, vorpice. Um, and so those use of those epithets, that constant repetition is indicative, and again, we'll talk about this, um, of oral composition. And the reason for that is, the reason you use repetition and stock scenes and epithets is they are aid memoirs. They help you keep the narrative going as you compose. And there's a fantastic classicist who later worked on this who, who we'll get to. But before then, the other thing to say is the internal Homeric world is really one of song rather than writing. So you'll know, for example, the famous song of uh, Demodocus performed at a banquet in the Odyssey.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. And sort of that idea. Well, that's quite a meta uh, Scenario within the poem, the idea that, I mean, some people have even prophesied that that's where we got uh, the idea of Homer's blind barred from the sort of divine inspiration. Um, and there are sort of various jokes you can get. I mean, earlier on in the Odyssey, when um, the minstrel is told to be quiet and he gets quite agitated, you can almost see Homer sort of having a slight dig at uh, perhaps his audience who have complained about what he's. Singing about Well, thank you very much for providing those sort of earlier perspectives i mean they're still sort of 350 plus years after the original composition but they really are quite insightful i think now fast forward into what we might call more modern times what what are the more recent arguments
1: so i mean you say more recent but we're gonna have to go all the (laughs) way back to the 17th century and we get Uh, a figure called Abbe D'Aubignac in the 17th century and he argues there was no single figure called Homer and now if we actually link this back to earlier criticism we get somebody else uh, Josephus um, a Jewish scholar in the first century AD who who says um, that he doesn't think Homer was a real person Um, so this is actually a repetition of of an earlier idea as well and what would happen over time is others would argue that there was a Homer who wrote two poems, um, but he was an oral poet. And then what we get towards the end of the 18th century, um, is the analytic school, or the, uh, the school of analysts, and they think there is an oral origin to the poem, but you have to recover it by stripping away all the layers of uh, later addition to the poem, so editions by people who wrote, and then editions by people who edited and they were fascinated by the idea that they could strip away all these layers and get back down to to the original poem and in sort of opposition to them, you get unitarians, and you know these people are, I think are real romantics; they think you know the Homeric poems are just too good, so they want one poem. One poet, sorry, who's able to write, who's able to create the poems um, even if they did have oral origins. And Hmm. their real argument is one that I have some sympathy with, which is that um, the poems show some kind of unity of design. So, for example, in the Iliad, in Book 15, Zeus tells us what's going to happen in Book 22. In Book 16, Patroclus tells us of Hex's death which also doesn't happen until Book 22. In the Odyssey in Book 1, we get Telemachus, who dreams of his father coming to drive away the suitors. And in Book 8, Odysseus brags about his skills as an archer. And these both foreshadow the end of the poem and the death of the suitors at the hands of Odysseus by bow and arrow. And again, these clearly aren't irrefutable arguments. But they do show that you know there seems to be a figure behind each of the poems. Um, It's important to make a point here, however, that pretty much no one nowadays believes the two poems have the same author. The vocabulary, the language, as well as the narratology, so the way of storytelling, so if you think about flashbacks in the Odyssey, are are too different for us to really think that they're written by or composed by the same person.
0: So you're sort of suggesting that it's possible that uh, there were many workers working on different aspects of the poem but they were all sort of overseen by this um not quite a character but a
1: figure who knew what was occurring throughout and so drop that in um i've actually never heard that view advanced although i I see no reason why it couldn't be i suppose there are at at basis there's one argument which is lots of people there was a, a poem that gets built up over time by lots of people reciting it and that gets sort of coalesced into a coherent text. Um, at some point, it's, it's written down. And the other view would be, no, there was one figure who composed it all the way through. Um, and that everybody else, is, you, you know, it has been adapted, but we need to get rid of those adaptations. I mean, there is no good answer to this because we're never going to be, if there is um, an original poem that through oral tradition has been, um, changed and developed and enhanced, we're never going to be able to get back to it. People have tried, but I, I really don't see how actually that's possible um, beyond a few suggestions here and there. Mm. I
0: suppose that's the trouble when you're dealing with literature that's old. No. Um, well, mm. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, later, and I think this is more recent no, no. than we have been talking about. There's a, there's a figure who comes along named Milman Parry, who does a lot of work on the subject,
1: but sort of stays relatively new.
0: Can you
1: talk about him, please? Yes. Absolutely. So Milman Parry, you're right, is more recent. He, he arrives really um, in the 1930s. Um, and he actually sort of totally changed the terms of debate. So those 18th and 19th century scholars had really been focused on the circumstances of the creation of the Homeric poems, who wrote them, Um, how did they write them? What Milman Parry did, which I think is fantastic, is he decided to look at what does this actually mean for the poems themselves? Which is to say, if the poems have been composed orally, um, what does that mean when we, nowadays or later, read them as texts? What effects are we missing? Why are the poems like that um, with their epithets and their, and their repetition and so on? How can we explain that? And Parry travelled round at uh, what was then Yugoslavia um, to listen to and to record what was a living tradition of oral heroic poetry. So these Yugoslavic poets were were reciting, they they didn't use the written word, they were reciting poetry um, about heroes. Um, So you can already see the the connection with the heroic Homeric poems. And Milman Parry and his uh, sort of partner in crime, Albert Lord, um, and there are lots of other people involved too, uh, they go to Yugoslavia to really, to see if there are any similarities. And of course they do find similarities
0: and they are sort of discovering uh, the reasons behind why such things were used from memory prompts to
1: animals. yeah exactly it's really about that kind of thing so for example parry developed the argument that epithets were mnemonic aids that they help the bard remember um and help aid the composition process because what you've got to remember is that homeric poetry is, a, is in hexameter and so you need set phrases that fit the meter, um, which helps you speed up your composition and your recitation. Um, and the other thing that had always baffled people was, you know, can somebody really remember a multi-thousand line poem? But Parry saw somebody do it. He saw a poet named Avdo uh, Mededovic already perform a 12,000 line poem entitled the wedding song. Um, And so again it proved that people really could orally compose vast amounts of poetry. Um, An interesting thing with uh, that kind of Yugoslavic oral tradition is that it still goes on. Um, There was a a strong tradition that I guess is gradually dying out of, of this kind of composition. And it's not often that a classicist really gets to do that kind of field work when they work on literature. So I think Milman Parry, also must be said, is a sort of a romantic hero who died tragically very young for for a lot of classicists.
0: Interesting.
1: That didn't take a side after all that. Um, Yeah, exactly. He never actually, you're right, he never took a side on on authorship uh, at all. He didn't say, you know... um, how many people had been involved in the creation of it, whether it was one person or, or, or several, for good reasons, I think, actually, which is, well, does it really matter?
0: Yeah. Well, that was actually, funnily enough, about to be my last question. Um, I think we've alluded to uh, earlier the possibility of one author and of the romanticism of it, the, the beautiful... Thing. That long ago, almost as mythological now as the firms themselves, um, being able to do all this. And though obviously, as you said, Parry has found evidence that this was possible. The idea of this one creator behind all of it is something that I think all classicists would like to believe, but it's also something that very few classicists, for all the reasons we've discussed throughout this podcast, can
1: argue. And so, why does it matter? I actually don't think it does. I don't think it matters an awful lot in terms of our appreciation of either the Iliad or the Odyssey. In fact, we know so little about Homer anyway. Positing him as an author really doesn't make it much difference to our appreciation. However, romantic the ideal of him is, what is important and why I really sort of have a lot of time for Milman Parry's work is oralism is important because it encourages us to appreciate the wider effects or the wider oral effects, um, by which I mean listening, of the poem. But we might also want to think how we can tie this issue into uh, more modern discussions of how much does the figure of the author matter? Um, and, well, we're discussing two of the best poems, okay, that's a value judgment, is, is my opinion, but a lot of people agree with it, ever written. And clearly the author isn't as central as perhaps we might think, um, in our own culture, in our own modern literary culture.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose it's sort of this argument of how much you distance the artist from the art. I mean, if you look at what some of the uh, Renaissance fellows were doing, sort of slashing someone's face open, but then being commissioned to do work for the church, the ecstasy of Santa Rosa, among others, being the famous one. And does, the, does your view of the artist corrupt the art because then you begin to look uh, for aspects of that within the book and does that whether that's a book or another form of art and does that affect your appreciation i think are the, the main the main questions because there are many artists in the general sense of the word who haven't been particularly pleasant people but who have created quite magnificent things i mean there's the stereotype of the sort of tortured genius and i think Interesting. I think there's less room today with how public the artists lives are for the sort of um, corrupt private life versus genius public life. I feel like those spheres. I mean, perhaps it's just me, perhaps that's not true. But I feel like those two spheres have sort of intermingled a bit too much now with the advent of social media.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, a really pertinent and interesting question. One thing I would say with modern artists that are still alive, to my mind, is always the financial element. So if somebody who we find unacceptable in whatever they've done is still financially profiting from their art or their output, that's a different question to if we reassess the legacies of, um, of authors or artists who are long dead, you know, their, their estates are no longer active. Because very clearly with the Homeric poems, we are able, because we have no choice to separate art from artists. Right? We know so little about Homer, we can't really talk about his influence on the text as a, as a human being. Um, so maybe that's an element to it. Do we, is there, do we have to maintain a different distinction for living uh, artists and, and another one for dead ones? I'm not sure. I mean, this is a question people have debated. for. for you know, a very long time but I certainly hope that the fact Homer is an author who may not even have existed helps us to think a little bit more about that question.
0: Well thank you very much Mr Himes for that very interesting discussion there. I think I've just got a few more uh, more comedic or lighthearted questions shall we say just to round off the episode. Now do you have a favourite polis? A favourite polis?
1: Yeah. Um. No. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Let me have a think. i uh, Corinth. I like Corinth. Okay. Um. Corinth is great because Corinth is this vastly wealthy city, and it's always trapped between Athens and Sparta. Um. But also, apparently, they knew how to have a good time. So I'll get. Uh, it was known as wealthy Corinth. And um, so I'll get behind Corinth. Why not? <laughs> and finally,
0: do you have? favorite tragedy not the most cheery of subjects but
1: if you had to answer yeah absolutely the backy everybody should read the It it's the first (laughs) greek tragedy i ever read and it ruined all the others because it's simply the best in terms of its its vividness and um the sort of the pace and the drama of the action Uh, i think it's phenomenal so yeah did you um did you catch the
0: the live stream of aeschylus the other day
1: I did for, for the Persians from Epidaurus. Yes. I've only seen a bit of it. I'm hoping it's somewhere on YouTube so I can watch all of it because I've never actually seen the Persians perform. Um, very interesting, bait. it's... The Greeks didn't really do historical tragedies, I'm sure you know. Um, so the Persians is really an outlier in that respect.
0: Mm. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Times. It's been a pleasure, as always. And I suppose until next time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Harry.